Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Culture File Weekly from the UK Reparations 2023 conference held in London last weekend. The conference convened to talk and indeed sing and play about all flavours of reparations, from cultural to educational and financial. Culture File's Louise Williams attended the conference and spoke with the artists, curators, archivists, politicians, lawyers and activists who gathered to explore what shapes reparations for the African slave trade might take. This is Friends House. It's just by Euston Station in London. This is the headquarters for Quakers in Britain and they've offered this space for this weekend's gathering about reparations. There are two drummers just by the stage keeping the beat. That's a real contrast to the usual subdued sounds of a Quaker gathering. This is a big space. There are seats for over a thousand people and they're set out in rows rising around a central area which faces a small stage. It's all plain wood, green tweed seats. It's very stripped back Quaker style. Except for a few red, yellow and green posters that have been hung up over some seats and they're on the stage as well. They have messages like reparations by our own people's power and there's another one that says reparations now. There are young and old activists filing into the room and finding their seats in clusters of expectation. Lester Holloway, who's the editor of The Voice newspaper, Britain's only black newspaper, has come as media sponsor of the event. He's covering the gathering as well. We need to to have an an apology uh, for enslavement from from the government. I would like to see some unity, if you like, between the monarch and the government, uh, because I think it's a a joint responsibility. Things like the Royal African Company was a a royal company, etc. But also we need to have a conversation, a national conversation, because there's a huge disconnect. Um, There was a poll recently um, out by Ipso, uh, which um, showed that I think 24% of, of white people are in favour of reparations and 61% of black people. So massive uh, difference there. Uh, the word reparations is, needs to be uh, explained um, and popularised uh, within the wider um, society as well. OK, Greetings and welcome if you'd like to take your seats. If anyone feels that they're too far away and would like to make their way down into the main seating area where you can be warm and share the warmth of the body of our family downstairs, please do make your way downstairs. We'd like to welcome you to the UK African Reparations Conference, an inauguration, which is the inauguration, yes, yes. Let's be that type of crowd today and get involved. Which is an inauguration of the all-party parliamentary group an inauguration of the all-party parliamentary group on African reparations. So we would like to open this, this, this session today with a libation, which is an African tradition of honouring our ancestors and those of our forebears who came before us. So please assume any posture of reverence or respect. And we'll be hearing from Elder Nana Kojubonsu of the Global African People's Parliament in the UK. Greetings family, grand rising and uprising. I'm not usually found without my hat, but for this occasion I have to give the ancestors the reference. Um, I'll start by, it's all about the vibration. 
as a people, we are a vibration people. So this is, we'll start with welcoming their presence. The gathering starts with presentations on the history of reparations activism, cultural legacies of slavery, discrimination and the impact of racism. And a presentation by Kwame Kwe Arma, actor, playwright and creative director of the Young Vic Theatre. Kwame draws the audience into the heart of the experience of slavery. It is the seasoning period Mm. when we landed on the soil and they took away our names Mm -hmm. and our gods and our culture and no slave system that we understand thus far has ever had that deep culturalization process embedded, embedded in the process of our enslavement. So our enslavement was not just physical. It was not just culture. It was spiritual, because you took me away from everything. Why reparations? Where is the money going? Who's going to get it? Asks Kwame. And when? He provokes the audience as well, describing himself as a direct beneficiary of enslavement. I'm, I'm born of Caribbean parents who travelled 4,000 miles to bring me to the first world. The first world being having all of the advancements that it have due to the benefits of the Industrial Revolution, which of course we know was built off the back of the capital that was made of the enslavement of Africans. And so therefore I... I am reaping some of the benefits of a first world existence. In, in doing that, it makes me have to recognize my privilege. And in recognizing that privilege, it means I have to rededicate my life back to making sure that my ancestors can be proud of the work that one does. So here today, what questions did you want people to leave with? I'm, I, mean, I mean, I think... I was just overjoyed that that people were here. What a wonderful crowd. And and I think my central question is, what is our task? What is our purpose? With 2034 coming, you know, the bicentenary of the abolition of slavery, what do we want that to mark? Do we want that just to be people saying, hey, I'm so sorry? Or do we want to be able to put some things in place so so that the disadvantage that we've been placed in as a African community for 400 years, that we can make some serious dents into that. What is my specific duty? Well, that is to remember, to salute, to correct, and to inspire. Through the tool that I have been given, that is the tool of the arts. We think that we are ruled by the military. We think that we are ruled by finance. But actually, the thing that really rules us, that really controls us, is narrative. You also talked about narratives and the power in narratives and the power in narratives that were circulating through the various rooms in which you've been talking today. Ultimately, narrative is king and queen when it comes to to us, I believe, as homo sapien. We need reflection. And, And so, therefore... We have found ourselves as a culture, or at least our images thus far has been reflected back to us in a very negative way. And that doesn't allow us to see ourselves in our full glory or actually um, fulfill our potential. And so 
starting with narrative, starting with identification, starting with making sure the stories we tell each other about each other are fair and equitable is stage one of reparative justice. Okay, let's say it again. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Um, it's a great Day two looks at environmental justice as well as sessions on the role of trade unions and education as a preparation for reparatory justice. Reparations means correcting um, past injustice, repairing, it can, comes from the idea of repairing past wrongs, putting in place solutions that you know address those wrongs. One of the speakers about education is Lisa Anderson from the Brixton-based Black Cultural Archives. With regards to the archives and the way that history has been framed, the way that people of African descent have been understood, the archives is essentially reparatory because where there have been gaps of information, we are going out to collect that information and we are celebrating it and making it accessible. Okay, so let's take stock. We're here this weekend, central London, and we're having this discussion. You've got beads in your hair. That, no, 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 it's the clickety-clack, I love it. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, reparations for me is about self-empowerment. It's about being able to fully honour my ancestry and everything that is comprised of that. I'm of African descent. I'm first generation black British. My parents came to the United Kingdom in the 60s and 70s from Jamaica. And as first generation, I've had to make sense of the fact that I was one of very few black children in my primary school and then the only black girl in my classroom as, as a teenager. As somebody who's always been culturally curious and creatively inclined, being so alienated, having so many questions was a source of a lot of pain and insecurity. I don't think it's a coincidence that I've grown up into an adult that seeks to empower people by giving them access to deeper understanding of history, culture, and the power of creativity. Bring me into the archive and let me tell me what it what it's about and how it serves maybe an educational purpose. I don't think I realised when I got the job that actually this was the perfect job for me as a culmination of my interest in culture and its power for personal empowerment, but also social empowerment and justice and the pursuit of equity. As has been often quoted, Marcus Garvey does say that you can't really be a strong people if you don't know your roots, your historical roots. Black Cultural Archives exists especially because the founders, the activists who understood the power of education knew that by giving people access to knowledge of the achievements and contributions that have been made by people of the African diaspora to society at large, that would empower people on an individual level, but it would also just enable that conversation of empathy, compassion, understanding, respect to develop, which is necessary for a cohesive society. That's why 
archives, the stewarding of archives, the ongoing collection of information that broadens the scope of what we understand to be important, um, which goes on to become history, that needs to be inclusive and that stewardship is key to the conversation of reparations. We are a treasure trove of history about the contributions that have been made to society from people of the African diaspora. We are made to be a safe space for that history, so we, that history is comprised of information materials, organisational papers, letters, journals, magazines, books. We are an information resource. I think of it as a treasure trove. We also welcome school children, actually students of all ages, into our building, because on the first floor, we have an educational centre where people come in and, and, and experience our workshops on various aspects of history that um, promote knowledge around the contributions of African diaspora peoples. And then we have a year-round programme of exhibitions and events that brings that history to life in more creative, engaging ways for people who don't want to research and do that hard kind of study work, but just want to have something accessible, inspirational, fun, engaging. Um, so we're a multi-purpose heritage centre, the home of black British history, and we want to partner with organisations across the UK that align with our mission, which is to collect, preserve and celebrate the histories of people of African and African-Caribbean descent in order to inspire and give strength to society. When we talk about reparations, and what I've noticed, what I've been struck by this weekend, is that it's not a new idea. I think we have documents of the reparations movement. We do have elements of that already. I think what we can do more is engage with the different community activists and activist organisations that are currently doing that. I think we have historical collections, but as has become clear in being part of this very community-based conversation, there are people who are doing work and we're not connected as well as we could be. So I am keen to see us correcting that. They also say that ideas around reparations are quite radical. But there was once a time that it was radical that somebody that looked like me could be free, that a woman could even vote in this country, and that a black member could be a black person could be a member of parliament. So I say um, that you know some of the struggles we have today are, are pointing to the progress of tomorrow. There was a lot of talk at the conference about museums and how to tell the story of the slave trade, how artifacts looted from across the continent should be returned. One of the sessions was called Restitution, Writing Historical Wrongs. It discussed stolen artefacts and the display of human remains in British museums. The session was chaired by Anya Kachiwambu, who's with AFFORD, a Diaspora Development Association. Anya Kachiwambu has done his fair share of liaising with British museums about how they present exhibits from the African continent. What you find is just sometimes the carelessness and the contempt. I think it was Glasgow University, they have a human skull on the catalogue and the provenance. The only thing they have is skull Southern Africa. So where, which community do you return that to? What about Ireland? Have you ever interacted with Irish museums at all? No, we haven't. We haven't. I mean, I know that on the missionary side there may be stuff. There were a lot of Irish 
missionaries who came to Nigeria in particular, but I know all across Africa, so there may be stuff there. But Ireland didn't, only as part of the UK did it play that kind of imperial role. Well, it's interesting because there's been a case, and it's not the same context, but there's been a case of uh, two archaeologists from Trinity College who took some skulls from an island off the west of Ireland, and those skulls have just been restituted to the island again. And when you were talking about the skull, now, they were, they were stolen, just to be clear. And so Trinity College did that research and then they had a kind of a, a process of them being returned and honoured. And giving people back their dignity, you know. I mean, we, we you know, we're having this argument with the British Museum. We, we found some remains. It's been dated back to around 30,000 years ago, these remains. And one of the things that everybody remarks on that was so amazing is that they were properly buried so you could see that somebody had given them a burial. Now we've known for 30,000 years that human beings dignify their death in burial so why are they on display 30,000 years later in, in the British Museum unless there's a kind of contempt for the people. So these are the issues that we're grappling with here and when we're asking for you know, this practice to change. I mean, I had a, a conversation with somebody from the British Museum and I said to them, look, this is not acceptable and would you like your grandparents to be on display and people to take um, selfies of them? She, he said, oh, I then never thought about it like that. Well, how do you not think about it like that? Let me guess she was white. Yes, of course. There is a museum in Britain dedicated to the history of slavery. It's in Liverpool, and it's currently on a floor of the Merseyside Maritime Museum. Liverpool was a major player in the trade in enslaved people. Ships from Liverpool trafficked more than 1.5 million Africans across the Atlantic. The International Slavery Museum is due a big expansion with a £57 million budget and a design for a building in its own right, along with a complete rethink about how to present the experience of enslavement through the objects and artefacts that have survived. Sometimes when you're in a museum and you're exploring objects, you can forget that human beings interacted with them. Here's lead curator at the International Slavery Museum, Miles Greenwood. To take the example of iron shackles, they were forged in places like Birmingham, they would travel to port cities like Liverpool, they would cross the seas to the coast of West Africa and they would be forced by one human being onto another human being. And I think sometimes if you focus just entirely on the materiality of the object, you can lose track of the human history, but the human history is important. So as lead curator and, my, and all my colleagues who are working on this as well, it's really important that we try to do justice to those people and to this history. Um, and part of doing that is presenting some of the difficult realities of that past, but in order to sort of make people think today what it might mean and what we might need to do with that knowledge. I think that no matter what, it's going to be an uncomfortable experience. Because, and it should be, maybe. Yeah. yeah, the reality of this history is uncomfortable and there's no way that, for example, we can engage with material culture such as shackles um, and branding irons in a way that would be comfortable. I think the challenge is, is how we present that history and that material culture in a way that really engages visitors and members of the public with those objects and allows them to consider what they mean to people today and what impacts this has had on the world.
Can I ask you also about some of the national trust buildings around Britain? And many of them were founded by families who got rich on the slave trade. Do you see kind of partnerships with the national trust or with other bodies to kind of illustrate not just the commercial hub that, that Liverpool was and how it thrived on the transatlantic slave trade, but also the individual families um, that in the past got rich off the back of, of the trading bodies? Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think it's just even National Trust properties. I think a lot of museums more broadly, um, their, a lot of their wealth and their collections will be tied up in transatlantic slavery. And National Museums Liverpool is no different in that regard. So there is an importance, I think, in making those connections, because one of the things that I often think with the International Slavery Museum is that a lot of the people who come there already come with an element of um, intent in that they they know what they're getting themselves into and part, I think part of that they are at least open to the idea of how slavery has shaped the world around them. But there's probably thousands of visitors to National Trust properties or museums more broadly who haven't perhaps considered how those spaces and those buildings have been built on the basis of transatlantic slavery or have at least been um, influenced by them. And I think it's important that those visitors have the opportunity to make those connections. 1834 was a key year in understanding slavery in Britain. And not just because it was the time of abolition, but because the same law that abolished slavery also created a vast wealth pot that was distributed to people who had claimed enslaved people as their own. How the wealth of these enslavers was inflated by this compensation scheme and how that wealth contributed to the story of contemporary Britain is the focus of a project run by a woman I met at the conference. She's called Gloria Daniel. Gloria was born in London to a father from Barbados and an Irish mother from Dunleary. Her intrigue with the history of enslavement began when she followed the lineage of her name. She was able to trace her Daniels back to John Isaac Daniel, who was enslaved on Barbados on a plantation owned by Thomas Daniel and Sons. So Gloria is John Isaac Daniel's great-great-granddaughter and John Isaac Daniel was claimed as property by Thomas Daniel. You know those blue plaques put up on houses to mark notable lives of people? Well... The father of William Hewitt, who was an MP at the time and who proposed the scheme of the blue plaques, was um, the son of a, a slave owner or a, a somebody who did business in the slave economy. Gloria has set up a project called 50 Plaques and Places and it's a series of black plaques which mark the buildings constructed on the wealth of abolition. Can you describe them so people can picture them? Yes, yeah, so it's um, it's a black plaque. It's a small black plaque. Uh, it's only uh, 27 centimetres in a 50 centimetre frame. Um, they're that size because that's what I could afford. So the work before SOAS came aboard was pretty much self-funded and that's what I could afford. Um, they are donated to organisations. They cannot buy them. They cannot say, can we have them? We as an organisation donate them to them. They are allowed to pay for the framing. That's fine. But we donate them. You cannot buy justice you cannot you cannot buy forgiveness this way but you can join us in beginning to understand your own history and the, so it's a black plaque it says black lives matter at the top the bottom of the round earl says yesterday today tomorrow that is a given obviously it then mentions a law as i said these plaques are evidence under the abolition act of 1833 such and such received compensation for so many people and it then says underneath that this 
This plaque honours those men, women and children. Slavery was a crime against humanity. So it is evidence for the most part. Um, and uh, I think it's stark. It's there's, no, there's no euphemisms in, in it. There are no euphemisms at all. It's pretty stark. No um, merchant. Yeah. <laughs> no, well, it, only it'll just describe what type of merchant they were. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, so can I just come back to the name, to your name, Daniel? And it's sort of, it's almost like, it feels almost like the name Daniel is this thread that you're pulling at to uncover history or have history recognised. And it's history, it's not just anybody's history, it's your family's history. Yeah, well, it's interesting, and I only um, bang on, if you will, bang on about the name, because I want everybody uh, in this country who's of African and Caribbean descent, and who are aware, but to make them more aware that the name is 21st century branding. It is no different than a tattoo on a Holocaust victim. They branded our descendants, our ancestors, in the real, and we are left with that history of our name. We like to say, by our name, we will know you. We will challenge you. It is our name that carries a history, and it is our name is the evidence of the crime against humanity, which has not been atoned for as yet. How is your relationship with saying your name to somebody like me, how has that kind of evolved with this really hard process you're going through? Well, I think it's a really good question, so thank you for that. Um, I mean, saying it to you, it, it seems like I'm just saying it. Um, you know, this the, the, the exhibition is the culmination of a, a year and a half work with SOAS. University, School of Law, Gender and Media, I like to drop it in. It is the School of Law. It's the law that allowed this to happen. It's the law that's going to resolve this. And it's the law I will be looking to to resolve this. Um, but my own work has been ongoing for 42 months. And yes, I think I'm going to have to take a while to reflect on what it all means and what that means, what that what that name means it's your identity it is my identity and uh, it's again it's interesting that you brought it up because a few years ago the Dutch government who have begun to address their past but as I say only begun to address their past at least their their royal family whatever that means decided to address it However, what I did notice a few years ago was that they had put out a call to uh, um, descendants in their country to say, we're no longer going to charge you 800 euros if you want to change your name away from a Dutch name. Now, can you imagine? Of course they want you to change your name. They want you to be as far removed from the evidence as possible. Well, we're hoping that people realise that the name carries the history. The name is the key. Look at, the, look at the name, look at where your ancestors came from with that name, look at who bestowed that name on you, if you will. Oh, one last question. Your mum, I think, is buried in Ireland. She's in, in Dean's Grange. I'm sorry she's not here and here to witness you know, your, your great work. Do you think there's, an, there's a sort of a feistiness that comes from being Irish? I have to ask. I know that's a bit of a cheesy question, but I have to ask. It's a cheesy question, but it's allowed. Um, yeah, no, there is a feistiness. Component. I mean, I have an Irish terrier as a dog. Um, I think I'm as bad as my terrier. Um, you know, my dad always said when he first met my mum, that sadly they did get divorced, but, but he did say that... Um, he, he met her in 1957 and she was on her racer with leather bags on the side and she had all these badges and stickers of countries she had visited and um, he was deeply impressed with that. I'm impressed. I know. I mean, I, well, you, you'd need to have known my mother to not be impressed because she was, you know, a, she was a staunch Manana Aaron. <laughs> okay. We welcome you, oh great ancestors. I'm on Ra and a
The reparations conference started with a libation ceremony that welcomed the presence of the ancestors into this space at Quakers headquarters in central London. The sessions that followed traced the echoes of violence through the brutal trade that links the past and futures of the people in this room. The event was one of many gatherings around the world this year that are part of a global movement to recognise the urgent need to make amends for the crime against humanity that was slavery. Earlier this year, the Dutch king apologised for his country's role in the trade. At the end of this conference, a call went out for the British government and king to do the same. Louise Williams there, and you've been listening to her special report from the UK Reparations Conference 2023, held last weekend in London. The Culture File Weekly will be back next Saturday, 6.30pm, on RTE Lyric FM and via podcast whenever you like. Till then, bye now.